Thank you. That was uh, very, very generous. Um, I'll start. Um, if I'm shaking a little bit, it's not because I'm nervous. I'm just so happy to see you all. So don't, don't take that the wrong way. Um, I'm going to start with four new poems. They're pretty much brand new. I've written them since I've been here. So uh, it could be a disaster. It could be something wonderful. Um, comments are appreciated on the way out. Uh, this first one, uh, I live in San Diego. They've got a great zoo. That's pretty much it. They've got the ocean and the zoo. And this is about... Uh, I get really depressed when I go there. So. It's called New Zoo. Like the cellophane fish gone anaphylactic in my palm, a slim gorilla sl slouches against the glass and lets the sun beat up on him. This goes on until the zookeeper breaks it up, tossing down cabbage heads, carrots, a few green bananas. The gorilla grunts, then turns as if to ask me to pass the salt. But there is no salt and we have no common language, only a heritage that makes his eyes sadder than Sunday morning, as I imagine him wondering how I got to be me when I was once just like him. Can you hear me okay? All right, good, thanks. Consumer abstract. Clouds, abstract in the corporate, not cubist sense, multiply. Dumb as dirigibles, contagious as spiders, somnolent as a supermarket, as they shop shape from light and leer like remote-controlled blankets over third-world think tanks and affluent fish markets alike. I hitchhike in their shadow along the interstate and love you in a house that sits like a fistful of splinters in the rain. In it, a yellow armadillo eats a felt hat with a drug lord's manners. Through the busted window, I can hear a tortoise click across the salt pan, efficient as a clerical worker. Your lips move like leprosy, speak of houses haunted by Hanta and Hud. There should be easier ways to address eviction, but history and weather are our best metaphors for loss. Above, clouds break up like calcium-deficient postcards. The mountains below, black kettles hellbent on pushing California into the sea. But still, the tortoise advances, and still, the armadillo eats. I translated this next poem uh, from an entry in a Russian dictionary, and I don't speak Russian. So here it goes. It's called Poorly Seas of 1906. That summer, there was cash, mustaches, and finger-picking. Then, inevitably, tapioca, crab apples, and all the tragedy of a Yakuza game show. As local legend bade, we planted a cemetery in June, and come April, trees grew to shade it. The river flowed cherry red, a document of pox, disease punctuating swimmers' bodies like a toxic braille. Ambulances came and went. Sometimes we went with... Other times, not. All the same, there are plenty of stories to keep us occupied. Amid the taste of borscht in the Cossack dusk, we read about safe crackers and centaurs, a Croatian hippopotamus that croaked on its 75th birthday, the infamous Cobra biker gang of Casper, Wyoming, still at large. Six meteors fell to Earth like catalytic octopuses, and we still don't know what kind of cosmic luggage they brought with them. The red-hot bodies as spiky and principled as roadside artichokes. 
It was 1954 or 1958, and all we knew was jingoistic gibberish. It was 1987, and we wanted the moon back. We hated everywhere and wanted to be somewhere else. We ached with the meteors six times over for a cold orange crush, our faces tattered by national crime and sold at yard sales. All we wanted was peace like a pox of industrial origin in the form of bath products to permeate the borders of our willingness, to ignore the crazy yodel that led us into the woods of no return, to ask the cosmos for our cap gun back. Last night, the telephone rang, and the voice of 1966 asked for you. It asked you, sorry, it asked if you remembered it, if you remembered the way its summer throbbed like an optometrist's eye chart, when you slipped quietly under the toll booth, collected your belongings, and broke north with nothing but the light from a handful of quarters to lead you to Arkansas. Do you remember, it asked, do you think you could come back? This is the last of the new ones, and um, I spent my formative years in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. I am not a Mormon, but uh, uh, the, the Mormon faith became very important to me, or at least in my writing. And so I, I found out recently that uh, Joseph Smith, who was the, the great prophet of uh, Mormonism, believed that uh, the Ark, not the, uh, not the Ark of the Covenant, not Raiders of the Lost Ark, but the Ark that Noah had, uh, was built in North Carolina. So that's part of this. Uh, the other part of this is uh, uh, John Gold. Uh, I was having a conversation with the painter who's here, and um, some of this references some events he's had in his life. This is not about him, but it references things that he might be familiar with. It's called the Aspirin Age. Somewhere near where Noah anchored his ark, Joshua trees royal in the desert wind like satanic cheerleaders. There's talk of proof, but proof is bones, and they're nowhere to be found but in the valley of the shadow of Dallas, where the weather balloon men and their fabulous black Cadillac clash with hurricane survivors who spent days up to their throats in turpentine and ask for nothing more than their lives back. They're told to relax, to lie back as if dentistry is the solution to subdivision and the rising seaboard. But they do it all the same and the future is keen as an Airstream trailer, shining like a Soviet missile as it crosses America in a dream of freedom where mileage is limited only by Dairy Queens and buttermilk churchyards. The sky is spirited as that famous American car based on that famous American horse we had to kill off because it represented our spirit a little too well. There are, of course, ghosts, but I don't want to talk about them. Let the bison drag their chains in the attic. Let them eat their ghost grass on their ghost prairie while Buffalo Bill and Geronimo call Custer the handsomest coward they ever knew. Let the pioneers sow their ghost gardens, raise their ghost crops in a parking lot where the sky is a neon sign over the pharmacy's neon sign. Let us not grow old. Let us live up to their expectations by leaving something to remember us by. A cure for toothache, a recipe for instant cornbread, a panoramic view of every place a prophet declared to be the place, a glass plate photograph of the slave who built the state, an heirloom rich as aspirin. 
Let us fully inhabit this age, so fantastic and benign, so furious and fallow, so foolish in ways our descendants have yet to recognize. This age will call us by our proper name. This age will have magnitude because it must. In this age, we'll drink kerosene and walk like lanterns through the night. And these are a little bit older. Blame. All that's left is a hot volume of ash. Trees lurk, some black and arthritic, upright, but most are mostly ash. Before they were ash, they were ash trees. Who says fire doesn't have a sense of irony? Who says the flame's more fickle the longer you hold it? If you stare at a lit match long enough, you'll see a man. If you see him, you'll know. This is the man that lights fires. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. This next poem uh, is about a, uh, a volcano, Krakatoa. You guys likely heard of that. It was a, a big thing long uh, before my time. But one of the interesting things about this was that when it went off, it was so huge uh, that it destroyed the island it was on, and it altered weather patterns for about a year or so. But the inhabitants of the island um, were actually... They were instantly killed. Um, but they were encased in these pumice uh, rafts, and pumice floats on water, and so you would have their skeletons encased in these rafts. It was almost like Han Solo in uh, you know, Return of the Jedi, the carbonite. No, okay. Um, I don't have another reference point. Um, moving on. So anyhow, there were these skeletons encased in the pumice, and they, uh, they made their way across the Indian Ocean and ended up washing up weeks later on the shores of Africa, Eastern Africa, and uh, they were discovered by school children. So that's uh, kind of a cool... Uh, real story. That's where some of this comes from. It's called My Krakatoa. In living, I'm part of a plot to recast the commonplace by being eminently corrosive. Consider the volcano. Of course, there was always the volcano. But after the volcano, there was only the volcano. A thousand-ton sweater where the sun used to be. The plantation turned from pepper to ink-black balloons that bubble like bromide. Skeletons encased in pumice drift for decades across the ocean until they arrive on an African beach, unnoticed by all but schoolchildren, who really are the only ones equipped to deal with such horror. All others look for meaning, where they find only delight. There is precipice, and then there is sacrifice. Beyond it, nothing more than a smorgasbord of death and hope of hopeful death, of death in the hope of another lobby beyond it, less hot, less lecherously sulfuric, less fulminating of flesh and landscape and home, a room blank as a dentist's office with magazines to fill the nervous chatter between what is expected and what comes next. I'm going to read one more poem. Um, I've just realized I've got a bit of a natural disaster theme going here. It was, it was not intentional, and it says more about me than it should. Uh, the next one's about a tornado. But before that, I did want to um, uh, just thank uh, those of you involved with uh, the, the K. Evans um, Fellowship. Uh, I, I would not have been able to do this without the, the support and VSC and uh, Fanny for letting me read before you. Um, this has been an absolute treat, and you've made my year. Thank you. Um, tornado debt. 
It's like I'm the official poet of State Farm or something, you know? It's, that, might, that might be a job. That might be good. I could make money at this. Um, tornado debt. Remember a burr, a buzzing about town? That afternoon was something to bite into, to be bitten by, and tetanus shot soon after. Torque till dust blush. Out east beyond clotheslines and telephone wire, a yellow blister broke. A skinny woolen arm crept down and ruffled a few trailers. It's something to smell aluminum siding that early in the morning. The weather vane hobbled like a chicken. It clucked once, then flew off. Air full of termites, my teeth ticked like clocks. The lawn tore. The fence followed after, picket by picket, prompt. I saw her in the kitchen. Inside a blizzard of dishes, forks, spoons, there was something I had always meant to say. I was sorry for how silent I'd been. I think she waved. The house up and went. I watched. I always watched. I woke in Texarkana and spoke with rare and rarer occasion. Thank you very much. Thanks, Adam. That's awesome. Um, Danny Howe is here with us yet again. We're so lucky. This is your third time here, I believe. First for me, so I'm very, very excited. Um, I'll say first of all, though, uh, Fanny's reading and visit here is underwritten by the Rona Jaffe Foundation, which actually sponsors um, all the women visiting writers who come here this year. Um, so just thank you to them. Um, and I will say a few things about Fanny Howe uh, before m moving the mic and setting her up very comfortably. Fanny Howe is the author of more than 20 books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Wow. In including most recently uh, a collection of essays, Winter Sun, which I know Ebenezer Books, fabulous local bookstore, has ordered a number of her titles, including this book. Um, check them out tomorrow. Um, she's won a number of, of stellar awards and fellowships, and I'll just name a couple. Um, the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize, the Poetry Foundation, Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize in 2009, um, awards from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters, and the National Endowment of the Arts, to name a few. Um, in short, she is an American treasure, so please help me welcome Fanny Howe. sitting down, have for a long time. <laughs> Thank you. That is that okay? Should be. Is that all right like that? Yeah. It's a nice room, compact sound. Rona, Rona Jaffe was a girlfriend of my first husband. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> I didn't realize she was partly responsible for my being here. 
So I'm going to read some poems from my uh, most recent published book, which is called Come and See, and was published by Grey Wolf Books two years ago. And then I'll read um, some new ones that they are also um, going to publish in 2014. So this one... Um, was written under the influence of the 20th century. Um, I had spent uh, seven years translating poems that were written in Bokenwald by two young sisters, and I was writing these at the same time. And I went to um, Russia during that period and got just sort of um, obsessed with, with what the whole century had done, what, it, what it, the calamity of the 20th century. And um, so these poems come out of that grim background. And I was just going to start with one um, called Following Wang Bing, who's a wonderful Chinese contemporary filmmaker who um, shows in documentaries uh, the residues of the revolutions. The ring road bends for the western line. Tracks break the ride to a little town like no other and gone. Always coal-burning smells bitter at the railroad depot. Yellow snow puffs on a bulb. Here the workers eat steamed dumplings out of a tin, so hungry they don't feel the heat on their tongues. Hands like teeth, they share their stories and their portions. Workers did this right through the programs. The great programs have ended. One worker continues to march with a torch along the tracks and frozen banks, scrutinizing the future. He sings tenor. In the end, they only care about each other. And this is a little poem called The Hut, which in a sense is um, sort of my, uh, the way I, I think of a poem or any kind of work of art. Up the hill is a hut made of sound, where two windows rhyme and the tiles stay on because they are nailed to a dream. The dreamer wonders, can this be mine? The floor is solid and straight and is amber from sap. The walls don't leak or let out heat from gray embers in the grate. This is the original home at the heart of brutalist design. No storm can slam its shape apart. No thief can carry it off. It dwells in ashen buildings where the present sleeps. And then um, I thought I would read a, 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 a set of poems called A Hymn, um, which uh, has some names from mostly Russia and uh, Nijinsky and um, from Dostoevsky's novels, Nastasia and Alyosha from the Brothers Karamazov. And um, Harry Lime from The Third Man, the movie, and... Um, Oscar Levant, who is a um, pianist who is in a lot of great movies, and Paul Ceylon, the poet. And this is called a hymn, and it starts with a quote from Dostoevsky. 
When I fall into the abyss, I go straight into it, head down and heels up, and I'm even pleased I'm falling in such a humiliating position. And for me, I find it beautiful. And so in that very shame, I suddenly begin a hymn. I travel to the page where scripture meets fiction. The paper slept, but the night in me woke up. Black letters were now alive and collectible in a material crawl. I could not decipher their intentions anymore. To what end did their shapes come forth? To seduce or speak truth? While birds swept over the water like pot-bellied angels, beautiful bells rang to assist the hoist. Up they went to slake their thirst, drinking from the mist, for the sound of bells seemed to free as well as hold them. Then down to scavenge the surf and eat the innocent. I love God and the fairy too, wrote Kerouac. Only that which exists can be spoken of. I wonder, will our imagination remain a temple burning with candles against all odds, behind a nipple and a bone, the simplest of glands laid in a circle around skin and liquid that stirs up imagery, winged and prisoned, as if blood were a wine-inducing visions. Some people cry when the characters die, then they kill themselves off stage away from the pages that they are turning in the night. Some people sacrifice themselves on a whim and regret it later on paper. Now I see you in the window. Are you in the book I was looking for? The one who traveled back to the happy days when she could jump on a moving bus and swing in the open air, clutching a worn novel in her purse, a curtain, a knife, adoring eyes. I watched the children running and turned to Alyosha for a blessing. He was sunk in the morass of rural life. I like to sit with him in the grass. Then we see the same thing at the same time and are one mind. We two masses, one a book, one a hand. When Alyosha spoke to the boys at the end, I anticipated their next question and his answer, for they formed a single gesture of kindness. Will we? We will. It never seemed evil to read about people we would never meet. We tested their fortitude as if in sleep. They generally failed the challenge, being strangers in a strange brain. They were baffled by the tools handed to them and by the traffic's direction. Frankly, in a dream or story, the goal is absolutely hidden from the one to whom it matters. Eons of lily building emerged in that one flower. Eons, eons, pins and wool, thread and a needle, all material made of itself and circumstance. It was a terrible century, consisting of blasted oil refineries and stuck ducks, fish with their lips sealed by plastic, and tar in the hair of cooks. Filth had penetrated the vents, Institutions moan from the bowels, balls of used cotton from the hospital dumpster, redden. 
yawning on obsolescence, the computer wonders who punched in such poor grammar. First padded virgins graduate to this suffering drama all by herselves, who once were selves. History is more than just another surmising grandmother at a window or a reminiscence twisted in the scrim of translation. Some long ago light is pulsating in a trout's heart on a laboratory dish. That light has entered all the holes, no matter how small, because it is the light that wants to live. Still waiting for you, my sunshine of justice and mercy. If west is east of Moscow, depending where you're going, then will you ever find me coming from a northerly direction? Are you even looking at the earth? Remember, the map is flat, but everything else is not. Is the newest child the oldest body in creation? Does he carry more information than his mother? Does her mother, his grandmother, do I seem redundant by having arrived with less, though first? Is that why I read at night with my lips compressed? The fact is I never knew if anyone felt me the way Nijinsky knew how to feel, or Nastasia. Nothing could shock that woman who had done so much wrong. As if trained in a theater, multiple personalities streamed from her tongue. This made her an exemplar for our time. She knew how others felt and became each one, forgetting who she was before. I remember her as a child. Her skirt got tangled up in a thorn bush when she watched the sky. Shaking herself free, she had to see the spiders, ants, and dirt around her skirt. It was like peering into her own body, and she screamed in horror. Later, consolation would be extended by a man dark and handsome. It came with his semen when she wanted hibernation. She didn't commit suicide this time, but ran down Nevsky Prospect as it began to rain and paused to lift her umbrella. For this moment, we were in our soul a child rushing home to Granny five floors up. I dropped the book, wept, and went to the movies. It's here where I can forgive someone for his crime. Poisoning babies for profit, Harry Lyme. I can actually forgive it when he's crawling in shit. Otherwise, we'll stand on the Ferris wheel together forever, stuck in the fog and iron. I just a witness, a witness to his ironic story. He will be a mix between Paul Ceylon and Oscar Levant when we are at our happiest and no forgiveness is asked. Neurotic, pale, and drawn to the canals, we'll lean over the embankment like sister and brother who are tempted to be actors. It's here that his shoes and cat will converge in the dark, like fish in a secular city, flipping through sewers for a flash of Christ. And then this is um, poems from the new book, which is, go is called, going to be called, and is already called, Second Childhood. 
and um, it's, it's more cheerful than that last, I think. Um, this poem is called For the Book. Yellow goblins and a god I can swallow. Eyes in the evergreens under ice. Interior monologue and some voice. Weary fears, the usual trials, and a place to surmise blessedness. Our favorite place lay in a time of three, and an apple tree bitten by bees before the sun went down. Stone walls and chalk scratches, and we three of different ages, you, she, me, he, I, we, took our places. None of us can be sure now how many we were in the garden watching and shouting warnings. There were hurtful pebbles, cracked windows and bicycles. We cut the butter and the day's bread evenly. At night, you shared the bed with the older two and st told stories no one can repeat. Twelve loaves and 5,000 baskets. Five baskets, 12 pieces of dough. 12 times five and butter for a multitude. Bread made, that is, with 12,000 inhalations of leaven. My monk is a man, but which one? All of them changed from young to wild, and the boyish one, mine, cared for the weak until there was no monk to care for him, besides an old woman who lived as a she. I became a brother sequentially, first in sandals, then in boots, then with a hood and bare feet, now nightbound, now nude. I, I spend a lot of time at a monastery in Ireland, so these sort of have that echo in them. I walked one day on the path above the donkeys towards a strong smell of wood and cigarettes, music and little daisies that burst through masonry, and someone who won't trust that I knocked. Dark for words and ferns, a clicking wren, and over the clover, calves run to the lure of grain. He's training them with shouts to follow him to another pasture. Later, before the second bell, we have a coincidental encounter. Broom le loops over the buttercups. The earth is coated with cones and needles, ferns with mini sacks of pollen. It only takes one shot of spittle on green for a monk to explain the sexual life of the forest and honeybees. He says he would like to live apart in a cottage with a garden. No humans, no obligations. Alone, I prefer a pod while he likes hives. But we both buckle ourselves in armor before we leave our habitats. Now the moon is snow over the castle, a glass ball in the blue of a June night. In Ireland, it's still bright at 11, and you can spot the sight of a revelation, not Fierna, on the horizon. We took a train like a sentence structure out of Limerick Junction to Houston Station, where Wittgenstein tried to discover emotion. 
this is a quote from Wittgenstein, philosophy should only be written as poetry. And then I'm going to end with a poem called Going the Other Way. And this was written in um, London. I was walking over Primrose Hill one damp summer night. Bundles of white chestnut flared under the streetlights. London's unsteady skyline was not the image of a mind, but the kind of graph that measures where the heart is not. It lurches, drops, drains, and twirls in its apprehension of the world. All imitation of the virus and the snail and an accidentally refined cliff. When my brain was weary, my heart was not. It all came down to oxygen and color in the cheeks of eyes that have darkened post-abyss. When my heart was tired, my brain kicked in thinking, thinking, and assembling points of interest. The brain can be shocked when all the air is gone, but the heart is slippery and needs a touch and something to nourish it. How did I get here, it wonders, at every turn. Blood. The heart has its needs and feelings sewn like threads into branches and seasons that we pencil as trees. The Irish women with brass-capped hair and tight mouths, and a Muslim woman with five girls and one boy, and everyone sadly clad at cork rail. In poverty, some screaming brats are fat, and some are starved into silence on their father's laps. No father is worse than that. What was built was always alien to the mind of some. The hissing buses and trains in Kentish Town, boys hunched in bunches on the lock, drugged and dirty and crushed, their eyes like lizards veiled and blind in retreat, while a man with a machete cuts a fellow down, blood all over his hands, proud of being a killing kind of man. Machete or his father's hand, which one caused this crime? 2013, an unlucky year for boys. Too many temptations, and we are not yet halfway through. Gotta get to the little ones fast. Curiosity counters every lapse of heart. There goes the train to Houston Station, where Wittgenstein obsessed about sex without heart and a brain with a beat instead. Clouds of lard over Kent's fields as the Eurostar races away from England and farther still from Dublin. Two mountains an hour apart, two buildings a minute apart, two friends a day apart, two eyes both living and dark. That's it. Enough of Wittgenstein. <laughs> Thank you.